While you're getting your outlines out and before we pray, uh, just one more quick commercial. Uh, Senior adult ministry having an African safari themed party. It's going to be next Saturday, the 20th of July. We'll start at 4 o'clock. We'll end about 6.30, so about two and a half hours of fellowship. It'll be in the fellowship hall. There is a food sign-up sheet on the SAM board in the family room. And, uh, but, uh, you know, b- before I pray, uh, let me say, too, you know, this week was, re- man, this was a really busy week for our church family. We had a reading camp for a lot of our, our little ones and uh, kind of getting older ones and uh, a lot of our adults this, at the beginning of the week. Then we had work camp at the end of the week. And so if you were a kid who was at reading camp or work camp or you were an adult doing anything with either of those two things, could you stand right now? And let's bang our hands together in appreciation. That's a lot of good stuff that's happening, not only inside of our church family, but also out in the community, and I thank you so much for it. Let's ask God to bless us as we jump into this text. Uh, Father, we we know just by experience that uh, life is a series of choices, and that choosing wisely is is part of what it means to live a, a good life in your eyes, to choose according to your will, to choose according to your heart and your desires for your creation and for all of your human creatures. And so as we begin to wind down our our thinking and contemplating and study of the Sermon on the Mount, we ask that you continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we become salt and light in this community and doing our good deeds in such a way that you get the glory. We are grateful for this text that Collis has read for us and for all of the ways that you are using it, not only today, but in our prior readings and in readings after today, how you are using this text to change us and to give us a vision of what life is about. And this, Father, we ask again in the name of Jesus and all the church said. I have talked to you before about a fellow by the name of Charles Blondin. Uh, he was a, uh, an acrobat. He was from France, had a different name when he came to the States, had blonde hair, so he adopted the name Blondine because of the color of his hair. Uh, he had come to America in 1855. He had traveled to Niagara Falls in 1858, hoping to become the first person to cross uh, the Niagara Falls Gorge. On June 30th, 1859, Blondine, before a crowd of about 25,000 people, he is dressed in pink. T- this is the 1850s. And he's dressed in pink tights and spangles. He's the first rock star. He starts across the falls, and it was so stressful that there were people in that 25,000, you know, large crowd that began to faint as he began to walk across the gorge. Uh, Right in the middle of of the the tightrope walk, he sits down, he motions for the boat, the maid of the mist, to anchor below him, He lets down a rope, he pulls up a bottle of wine, which he drank, and then crossed to the Canadian side. After 20 minutes of rest, he put a daguerreotype camera on his back and took a picture of the crowd taking a picture of him from the middle of the tightrope. Everybody is just amazed at what this fella is doing. On July 4th, Blondine does an encore, 
as he's crossing the cable, he lays down on the middle of it. He crosses with a sack of grain or a, a, a pillow case or something over his head so that he can't see. He crosses with a wheelbarrow. He's pushing a wheelbarrow across it. He somersaults and flips across it. He dangled by one hand. He sat down at one point, ate a piece of cake. At one moment, he brought a, uh, you know, he crossed at night. He, he crossed while he was in shackles. Uh, to me, what was really amazing is that he crossed it carrying an oven, balanced the oven or the stovetop on the wire, cooked himself an omelet, and ate it. He was the first rock star. But the most amazing thing I think he did was that he carried his manager, Harry Colcord, across. And as he is getting Colcord onto his back, he says, To cross, you will have to trust me. You are no longer Colcord, you are Blondine. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, you, we will both go to our death. And as uh, Concord is on the back of Blondine and they're crossing this, this tightrope across the Niagara Falls Gorge, some of the guy wi wires that kept it from swaying begin to break. But they make it to the other side. Now, nobody else was going to go across like that. Only Blondine and only Cole Court. What was it that allowed Cole Court to get onto the back of Charles Blondine and cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope? Stupidity, I think somebody said. <laughs> Try, hey, not a bad answer. But the real answer is trust. Because even a stupid person is not going to do that. It's trust. Colcord had seen enough to trust Blondine to carry him across his back, across that tight wire. Colcord could not trust to get himself across, but he could trust Blondine to carry him. Now, you know, we all know that it's easier to have an opinion than to get involved. All of the people watching it, they have an opinion one way or another. You know, not everybody thought that Blondine was a hero. Some of them thought that he was, he was reckless, that, that he was suicidal. They thought he was a maniac, and they thought there was no reason all of these people should be paying money to watch this madman cross, cross this, this, this tightrope. But then you've got Colcord, who goes from being someone with a, an opinion, he goes from being just a spectator to somebody who is participating in what it is that, that Blondine is doing. That is the difference between being a spectator and being a participant. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls the spectators that had come to listen to him teach to become participants in the kingdom of God. At the beginning of this sermon series, you'll remember that I mentioned that there were three things that Jesus was saying and one thing that he was doing throughout his ministry and especially at the very beginning of it as he was making a, a kingdom breakthrough in history. He preached that the kingdom of God was breaking into history. The kingdom of God is near, he would say. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Number two, he preached that people need to believe the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is available to everyone, that it is available to anyone, and he began to define what the kingdom of God would look like, which is what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And while he's saying those two things, he's also doing 
miracles. He's healing people, which not only brings credibility to his message, and it begins to open their eyes, seeing something different and something worth looking at, but his healings illustrated the restorative and healing nature of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes near, things begin to be put right. But the kingdom of God was also in need of human repentance. One of the things that he preached everywhere was repent. Why did he call human beings to repent? The answer is that humans are out to lunch. In fact, uh, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you know what, you're out to lunch. Man, some of you guys are doing this enthusiastically. Is it not true that we can be our own worst enemy? Amen? Is it not true that we actually think that we can run the universe? Amen? That's us. Is it not true that we actually think that we can do God's job? Lots of people are trying. Do we not all share a history of disastrous decision-making? Indeed. Humans are infamously bad decision-makers about their life, about life in general, about other people's lives. And Jesus calls us to repent. Now, what does that mean? To repent means that we come to our senses and that we turn away from what we were doing in order to travel in a different direction. We, we come to our senses. We change from absurdity to wisdom. It's, I'm going in this direction. I come to my senses. I see that it's futile. I see that it's vain. I see that I'm heading towards a brick wall. And to repent means that I've turned 180 degrees. And here's the thing, folk. You know, we think that repentance is sometimes just this one-time thing that happens in life. Listen, repentance is one of the greatest human assets. The ability to choose and to change is huge. The ability to repent is one of fallen humanity's assets. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls for people to repent. To stop just being spectators. To become participants in the kingdom of God. Although he doesn't use that word, that's what he's saying they need to do when he says, enter through the narrow gate. It's a call to become his disciple. It's a call to move from being a, a, a spectator, watching from the sidelines, watching from safety, and being a participant in the kingdom of God. And in this text that Collis has read for us, there are three specifics that he gives us when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. It involves a decision of the mind, it's a confirmation in our life, and it's a relation that is at the heart of it. So let's begin with those specifics. Number one, decision. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a, only a few find it. Remember, in this text, Jesus is calling people to enter the kingdom of God. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And from that point on in the Sermon on the Mount, 
the Sermon on the Mount is full of contrast between righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness of what the life in the kingdom of God looks like. I'll give you an example. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, in the kingdom of God, you deal with anger and you deal with contempt and you deal with disdain in your heart. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But in the kingdom of God, don't lust, don't objectify, don't commodify people. In the, kingdom, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said to people of old, don't make vows, but in the kingdom of God, you understand the power of words because you understand the power that is in every one of God's words. You love your neighbor, but in the kingdom of God, you not only love your neighbor, but you love your enemy, and you pray for those who what? Persecute you. It's an eye for an eye, but in the kingdom of God, you turn the other cheek. In the kingdom of God, you go the extra mile. You make friends with those that um, are, are taking you to, to, to the courts in order to... to in, in fact, you leave worship. You leave worship in order to make friends or to be reconciled with the one that has something against you. I mean, you get the idea. We don't need to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says again, there are two ways. Narrow gate wide gate. The narrow gate is to obey the call to be his disciple. The wide gate is everything else that that is not. Now I think contextually it's two things that he's already mentioned. One is the pharisaical self-righteousness, the legalism of saying that I can earn my way, that God's going to owe me something because I live such a good life. It's the publican and, uh, and Pharisee of, in Luke's gospel where the, the Pharisee says, God, aren't you glad that I'm not like this fellow over here and all the times that I fast and what I give away, all my goods, aren't you glad that I'm not like that tax collector, that, that publican over there, where the publican can't even look at heaven and from far away he says, have mercy on me, I am a what? Sinner. The, the wide gate is pharisaical self-righteousness, that legalism, making myself righteous in God's eyes in order to earn my salvation, or paganism. Remember, he says, you know, the pagans do these things. Don't do what they do so that you can seek the kingdom of God. Both of these are salvations based on what I do. I'm saving myself based on what I'm able to achieve or what I'm able to conjure up between these two hands. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God is eye-poppingly, jaw-droppingly inclusionary. It is open to everyone and anyone, but it is only through an exclusive gate. There is only one gate. Entrance is through Him. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, The work of God is to do this, to believe in the one He has sent. In John chapter 10, He says, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Second time, I am the what, church? Gate. Whoever enters through me will be what? They will come in and go out and find Pastor John chapter 14 in one of the most controversial passages for non-believers. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
but this truth can be violated. The false prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is one who reveals God's will to people. The prophet is the one who tells people how they are to live in light of God's presence. The false prophet is the one who teaches people to trust in anything else other than God. And that's the problem of legalism. It sounds so spiritual. Doing so well, doing so many good things, but it leads to destruction. Pharisaism saved no one. And the proof of it is in the life that it produces. Jesus says twice in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 and 20, by their fruit you will recognize them. Which leads to the confirmation. A confirmation. Jesus continues with the contrast, this time the good tree with the bad tree. And he's saying you cannot fake true discipleship. Your inner reality will overwhelm your outer reality. A good tree, verse 18, cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we've talked about it over and over and over and over. That when you are called to be a disciple of Jesus, when you are baptized, you are recognizing not only that He is your Savior, but that He is your Lord. And not only that, there is a transformation that takes place in your life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, if we say, claim that we are in Him, we must walk as He walked. The idea in Ephesians, where Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus about this new humanity that begins to develop inside of the kingdom of God. We are transformed people. We're transformed people. It doesn't mean that we are a perfect human being. But what it does mean is that there is a change that is happening. When we stop just being a spectator in the kingdom of God, and we turn into a disciple of Jesus, we are going from immaturity that's giving way to maturity. Weaknesses are being displaced in our life by strengths. Instead of gossips and tearing people down and using kind of decaying words to decay people, we become encouragers. We're not greedy but giving. We're not mean but we're kind. We're not impatient but patient. We're not judgmental, but there's a holiness about us that even though we are in that holiness, we look to be different from the people around us. There is a beauty and a graciousness and a God-likeness that seems to draw people in. Paul calls it in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. People long ago, uh, at the beginning of my ministry, I encountered the question over and over again, Mark, 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 how do I know that I'm saved? I said, well, you know the, the, the Scriptures? You know the Scriptures? And they would say, yes, and I've done all of that, but how do I know? And the Bible tells us that one of the ways that we know is that this changed life, where we begin to look like the Christ in all that we do. The kingdom of God begins to blossom in our life. That there's love and there's joy and there's peace and there's forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And it all goes back to a relation. This passage has always been troubling to legalists because it seems to be so unfair. But the point is, is that when you, when you are in a situation which requires you to, to do something in order to achieve something else, there's always got to be a line drawn someplace. Like you're wanting to get into college. 
and you know you have to have a certain kind of an SAT score in order to, to be accepted into that college. You've got to be uh, a certain percentage of your class. What if they're only taking the top 10% and you're in the top 11%? The line's got to be drawn somewhere. Top 11's really good, but top 10 is where the line is. It seems so unjust. Or you miss the SAT or the ACT score by just one point. Great score, but it's not good enough. That is the cruelty of justification by works. And why Jesus says that those who teach this way are false prophets and wolves who are devouring the sheep. And so Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And yet here are all of these people who are doing some pretty impressive things. They're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're driving out demons, performing miracles. And Jesus says, I do not what? Know you. I do not know you. The kingdom of God, entrance into the kingdom of God, is not about works. It is about relationships. A narrow gate. Jesus once prayed that this is eternal life in John chapter 17. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A relationship where he says, I know you. Last month, Ellen and I went to a wedding in Austin. We're driving to Austin. Uh, not always the uh, the funnest thing to do. In fact, you know, there have been times that, you know, driving through Austin is nearly enough to make one an Aggie. I-35 is like sometimes a drag race trying to become a demolition derby. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So, you know, we're having to go to this wedding that's up in Austin, which means driving through 35 through Austin. That week, we began to re receive some, some information that I-35 was going to be a mess. And when is it not ever a mess, right? Because they were closing down I-35 through Austin to one lane both directions. So I'm thinking, what? You know, we're going to have to leave in the morning to get there for a nighttime wedding. So on the day we left, I consulted with Waze. Do you know this app called Waze? If you use Waze, raise your hand. Brilliant people in our church. Waze. I consulted Waze, which is uh, it's a, it's an app. It's like Google Maps and, and other GPS-oriented apps but they will let you know where the cops are down the road. They will let you know where there's a wreck, where there's a stalled vehicle, all these kinds of things. And so I consulted with Waze, and the female voice, the female voice said to me, I-35 is the quickest way. Huh. And she continued to say, here's the time frame, and this is the time you can expect to arrive. I said, does this woman know what she's talking about? Has she ever been on I-35? I had two options. I could ignore the voice of the Waze lady, or I could obey it. There was not going to be a third option. I decided to trust, and Ellen and I actually had one of the fastest drives to Austin in the past 20 years. And you know what happened? I get to the end of the, uh, of the route, and the Waze lady comes on and says, you have arrived at your destination, and you owe me an apology. 
trust. Trust. We read at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that crowds and disciples came to the mountainside where Jesus sees all of these people come to him. He goes up on the mountainside. He sits down and he begins teaching. And they are amazed at his teaching over and over and over again. Whenever that somebody hears Jesus teach, they are amazed at what it is that he is saying, what is coming out of his mouth. And at some moment, there were those in that crowd that decided to move from just spectating to just actually saying, you know, Jesus is a pretty amazing guy. And actually beginning to follow him and to participate in the kingdom of God. Their, their minds and their hearts became fully engaged with what it was he was saying. That the kingdom of God had opened its doors to someone like me. And that I don't have to be angry. I don't have to be a slave to sexual desire or the destructive chase for more anything, but especially more money. And I don't have to be frantic. I don't have to be panicked. I don't have to be frightened anymore because God, the creator of the heavens and earth, is, is with me. And they said, I want to be more than just a face in the crowd. I want to be his disciple. And that is the invitation that we offer today. To enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. That leads to a life that is, is not going to be easy at times, and it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, but it is a life in which you know that you are connected to the Creator of the heavens and the earth. How does it feel to know that God knows your name? That God knows your mail? That God... God God knows what you're going through. He knows your emotional life. He knows your intellectual life. He's no, he knows what you're going through physically, what your health is like. He knows what's going on inside of your heart. And he's not doing it in such, you know, kind of a CIA way of, you know, you know trying to get inside there so he can find the dirt on you. But he's doing it because he is a father who cares about his children. But there is only one way there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through Jesus of Nazareth. We enter the narrow gate that leads to life. We enter through the one who died outside of the gate in order to become the gate in which we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, if you would like to become his disciple, we want you to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Let's stand and let's sing. <laughs>